Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 podcast kit, visit shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit theoldmillpress.com. And by listeners like you. Podcast talking all things Disney with your hosts L. John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome back to an all new episode of Skull Rock Podcast, a show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every week, we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, as well as what's going on in streaming, what's playing in theaters, and what's up with the universe of entertainment. I'm Al John Go. I'm a musician, longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culturist. And you can email me, Aljon, A L J O N, at skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and daredevil. Welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Al John, how are you? We've got another great week. I love it. I'm doing well, Dave. It is summertime, and it is a rainy, rainy summer here so far in Music City. We've been uh, under under storm clouds now, and with internet being knocked out for a few days and just bad storms, torrential storms. But hey, we're here and the internet is up, that means we've got another show. So. That's fantastic. My <laughs> gosh, you are having the weather in the middle of the country. Yeah. You know, out, out here, it's been dry. But oh. we got all of our rain in the beginning of the year. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I hope we, I hope we we got so much rain out here, Al John, that a, a prehistoric lake reformed in the San Juan, Juan Valley. Seriously? Seriously. Oh my yeah. goodness. <laughs> the two the Tular Lake. Wow. Uh, which for decades and decades and centuries apparently uh was farmland. Hmm. Um and now uh, a a lake has reappeared. Wow. Um, so they're dealing with that. Uh, but I got to tell you, we have a great show uh, today. We've got uh, animator, director, story artist, executive producer, show creator. Matt O'Callaghan yes. is joining us. And not not just this week, but next week as well. This is a two part interview. There's just so much to unpack with our friend Matt. Big fan of Matt's, and uh, like I said, his projects are on rotation here at the house. But what a great personality. I mean, this guy, he's done so much in the industry. I can't wait to delve, uh, delve in with him about it. Yeah, it's going to be a great conversation, so I'm looking forward to that. Absolutely. What else is happening with you? Man, there is so much. I mean, um, I don't know if I mentioned this, but a couple of weeks back, I ended up seeing Noel Gallagher of Oasis and his uh, – New, supporting his new record, touring with the band Garbage. Um, so it was kind of like reliving my 90s glory, if you will. 
And that's uh, fantastic. Here, there's a brand new amphitheater here. And I say new, it's been around, uh, you know, a year, a couple of years now. And, but I've never been to a concert there. So we went and it's located in a quarry outside of Nashville and it is just a beautiful place. And Shirley Manson of garbage and, and Noel Gallagher said that this is one of the most amazing nature venues ever made. It's just, they enjoyed the time they had here and you can tell, I mean, they've been rocking for, you know, over 20 years and it's great to see the bands continue to make great music um, continue to entertain the fans and not phone it in. And I, I'm so grateful at opportunities like that, where you get to watch these bands that I, I, I love. I think uh, we take for granted that these bands are going to be around forever, but as we can talk about in the, the new segment, a lot of these legends aren't going to be around forever, you know? And so take out every opportunity you can to see your favorite musicians, go out there and play uh, big, small venues, up and comers, whatever, you know, go out there and experience the art in person. And, and you know what's so great? Uh, you're in Nashville. You're in Music City. I, am. I mean, there's got to be uh, like uh, more choices than than you know what to do with every night of the week in every, Nashville. Yeah. Every night of the week, there's something new and exciting, and it's great to see these bands come through and and perform. They leave it all on the stage, and it's uh, it's just a wonder to see. And a lot of them have relocated here because there's such a huge community of writers and performers, and the most talented musicians in the world live here. So it's um it's a wonderful thing, you know, being here in Music City. And, and, and the, there's also an animation community in Nashville. There is, and you know, we talked about the Bancroft brothers. You know, Tom lives here and has a great animation school i guess he teaches over there at lipscomb college and uh he does amazing work and i know that his students are great and we've had him on the show multiple times and he's just uh he's just great and i know there's a bunch of other i mean you know uh, pomeroy lives here there's a bunch of people that live here that are great artists as well and animators so it's great to see you know that community uh, thrive here and there's a lot of great projects that uh that are birthed here in nashville uh for other streaming services so it's it's pretty cool that these houses are here I think we're going to have to do a Nashville show. I think so. I think so. I, I think we could reach out to a handful of people and have them on uh, and talk animation, Nashville music. Yeah. I, I, you know, yards. yeah, you know what? I think it would be great when you make a trip down here, Dave, uh, come on out. We'll do a live show somewhere. We're going to figure that out. Okay. okay. I'm, I'm, on, I'm up for it. <laughs> All right. man. Well, uh, we have a lot of news to talk about too. Uh, so let's get started by answering something from the email. We always love to get these. Skull Rock Podcast. Answers your email. You know, exclusively on Spotify, uh, our home, uh, you could, of course, listen to us wherever you get podcasts. But uh, we do have a Q&A here, and we did get a, a, a comment from Jason Gordon, one of our listeners, who says, uh, great episode, a lot of observation posted by Rick and David. This is the Rick Farmelo episode from a couple of weeks back. Yeah. That my yeah. spouse and I were just discussing regarding the current state of animation after seeing Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse, then Elemental. Uh, I, I, I think this is good. I mean, I, animation, it, it, we shouldn't discount the fact that these studios continue to push the boundaries of, of animation. And while Elemental... I think has drawn a lot of comparisons to inside out. And we've talked about this on the show. It's different enough, um, you know, um, 
and across the spider verse is just like groundbreaking it's just so good what they've been doing you know with that uh, that franchise Oh, no, I completely agree. And when we get to our, our picks of the week, that's one of the films I'm going to be talking about because I did go to the theater to see it over the 4th of July weekend. Oh, that's great. I can't wait to talk about that. That's wonderful. Another thing uh, was mentioned is a post from our friend Matt Mason. If I can pull this up here, um, he goes, hey, all, I wanted to join the conversation about Pixar's Elemental. He says, I saw it today really enjoyed it the look is similar to inside out um but the movie doesn't have anything to do with it um i don't know if you can read that dave i'm trying to uh for whatever reason i can't read it for whatever reason i'm trying it's like it's like micro type i can't read it Algernon, you're younger than me you should be able to read i know i just got a new prescription (laughs) for my glasses and i'm like hey guys you know i I, i've literally i've been the past two weeks i've been like uh doing the whole thing with my glasses where i'm trying to figure out my trifocals you know (laughs) but but at any rate he's listened to it he's uh he's checked out the show and he says uh I have to put a list of the uh, the trailer being awful. The trailer told me nothing about the movie. The movie was what and what it was really about. Um, so there you go. Um, well, you know, Aldron, this is what we've been talking about. You know, a good trailer tells you what the movie's about and why you should want to see it. Yes, right. And when we see good trailers. The immediate reaction is, oh, my gosh, I got to go see that movie because that looks great. Right. And sometimes you go see a movie because the trailer has been so good. And then you realize, wow, they pulled the wool over my eyes. They gave me a great trailer, but it was the, the the handful of great bits in the movie and the rest of the film was a stinker, right? Yeah. I mean, I've had that happen in the past, but I have to tell you, this is a problem. This is a problem in the industry because bad trailers. And again, you have, you you have, you know, these things being done by committee. They put together a trailer that has universally people saying, well, that looks like inside out. And here's Matt telling us it has nothing to do with inside out. There's a great story there. So why didn't they put that in the trailer? And Dis- Disney needs to go look at that, and they need to go look at how their trailers are being made and who's making those trailers. Because yeah. the trailer, you got a minute or 90 seconds or two minutes to tell the audience this is what this movie's about and why you should care and go see it. Yeah, if you can't put a, a compelling trailer together in 30 seconds or 60 seconds, you're in trouble. And I have to put, and uh, Matt continues, I have to put a lot of the low turnout to the awful trailer. The trailer told me nothing what the movie was about. Uh, The trailer needs to get people invested in seeing a movie, and this one just didn't. It showed off the look, which, like you said, looked similar to past Pixar, but ignored an engaging story for the reason for people to come see the movie. It's disappointing, as this movie was good, with a story I really enjoyed. I hate to see movies like it not get made due to this blunder. So well, there you have it. I mean, they they really do need to take notice of what the audiences are saying to them or not saying because they're not going to the film. You know, why didn't people go? You know, Elemental was everywhere leading up to the release in the theaters. Yep. But all of the advertising, the trailers, 
none of it was compelling to tell us you need to go see this in a theater. And maybe the decision was made to market elements, pardon the pun, uh, that harken back to Inside Out for people to draw that conclusion. So I don't know. It was just a misstep. And, you know, hopefully Hollywood will learn from this blunder. But, uh, hey, if you have an email over concern or question, please don't hesitate to reach out like our fans did over Spotify and our Q&A section. Leave us those voicemails in our voicemail section or just drop us that email uh, over social media. We would absolutely love to check that out. And I, I want to give a shout out to Matt Mason because he he's a regular listener. He's been a guest on our show. He's the author of At the Corner of Fantasy in Maine, Disneyland, Midlife and Churros, which is an award winning uh, book on poetry. And you can get a signed copy at the old dot com. Check That's it awesome. out. Let's. Yeah, I can't wait. Hopefully he'll be back on the show soon. All right, Dave, it's our picks of the week. What have you been watching, Dave? <laughs> well, I, gotta, I watched a lot because of the holiday weekend. Um, I went and saw Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny in IMAX. Okay. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this film. I absolutely loved it. Uh, Dare, uh, Daredevil archaeologist Indiana Jones races against time to retrieve a legendary dial that can change the course of history. Accompanied by his goddaughter, he soon finds himself squaring off against Jorgen Voiler, a former Nazi who works for NASA. Well, there you have it. Um, it's Harrison Ford, Mads Mikkelsen, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, uh, and Antonio Banderas. Um, it, it, it is just a terrific summer adventure film. Are there some continuity issues? Are there some plot issues, uh, story problems here and there? Yes. But guess what? Don't pay attention to it. Just go in and enjoy this film because it's an action adventure with our favorite archaeologist, Indiana Jones. I love the film. I love the series. I'm sad that this will probably be the last one. Mm. Yeah. I wonder what happened to Indy's son. Hmm. Wonder. Anyway. Yeah, well, hey, listen, you know, <laughs> if they if they if they have plans to continue because they could continue this on in in the in the vein of um the 007 movies you they, know the James Bond films you know could. you could bring you could bring in a younger Indiana Jones character uh and continue the series uh I would love that because these are great summer movies I think so you know there's a lot of stories to be told and they alluded to and there's a lot of Indiana Jones books that they draw from canon um you know, just from previous films. So uh, let's just keep it going, but just make it good. That's all we ask as fans. Just make a compelling, great story, and we'll go to the box office to see it. But uh, all right, Dave, what else have you been watching? Well, I also had a chance to go see uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse in the movie theater. And I, I, Al, John, I'm just blown away by this movie. Yeah, it is. It is so visually stunning. I, I, I'm almost at a loss for words. Uh, uh, for our listeners, uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse 
this is the synopsis. After reuniting with Gwen Stacy, Brooklyn's full-time friendly neighborhood Spider-Man is catapulted across the multiverse where he encounters a team of spider people charged with protecting its very existence. However, when the heroes clash on how to handle a new threat, Miles finds himself pitted against the other spiders. He must soon redefine what it means to be a hero so he, he can save the people he loves most. Um, what a great cast. Uh, Haley Stein, uh, Steinfeld, uh, or Steinfeld, excuse me, uh, Oscar Isaac, uh, Shamelk Moore, uh, Karan Sony, uh, Daniel Kaluuya. Kaluuya yeah, uh, from, from Black Punk. Panther. Yeah, from yeah, Black Spider Panther. Punk. He, yeah. He's absolutely fa- fantastic. Jason uh, Schwartzman is in it. Yep. Uh, Jake Johnson. You know, it's just a great voice cast. But more than that, this is a fantastic film. Visually stunning. This is where animation... I mean, th- this is what excites me about the future of animation is to see this type of a film. Um, art direction, by the way, uh, Dean Gordon, uh, who's an old friend uh, from uh, Fantasia 2000. He worked on Fantasia 2000. Yeah. Uh, and, and I got to tell you, I, I mean, at times this movie is, is frenetic. Uh, and, and, and again, it's just a visually stunning picture to see. And I would encourage people to see it on a big screen. In fact, the opening of the movie was reminiscent of the Takata and Fugue, um, uh, sequence from, uh, Fantasia. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, I just, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Uh, so this is uh, obviously two thumbs up for me. I think people should see this in a theater. I I, I would not be surprised if this film uh, gets nominated for uh, an, uh, an Academy Award for Best Animated Picture. Oh. And I would not be surprised if this picture won because it is just absolutely beautiful movie you see we're calling it right now this is a definite oscar it's not just an oscar contender for so many of the reasons dave mentioned uh when it comes to animation cinematography uh, sound design um you know effects all that but you know what it's gonna win it's gonna win an oscar i think it's gonna win i so, hope it does yeah um and then on the small screen i did watch Nomora. uh Nomora. yeah no no namona no Nomora. Nomora. yeah yeah Nomora. yeah i watched Nomora, and uh that is uh here's the synopsis a knight is framed for a crime he didn't commit and the only person who can help him prove his innocence is Namora, no, it's Namona. It's Namona. Namona. I'm sorry. Yeah, Namona. Yeah, it's Namona. Uh, a, a shape-shifting teen who might also be a monster. Uh, he's sworn to kill. So, uh, you know, there, there's a terrific cast here. Uh, but I, I have to tell you, Al John, from the get-go on this movie, I, I, the main character Ballister, uh really reminded me i think of one of the character one of the lead characters in um rapunzel from disney oh. uh to some degree i mean the character design you know felt derivative to me uh and you know the film is beautiful uh the story didn't really resonate for me it it, it was it didn't have a heart as far as i can tell yeah um you know as far as i was concerned um I, I thought it was okay. You yeah. know, in my book, it was an okay movie. 
Um, I will tell you that what was really interesting to me was um, the end credits. Yeah. Uh, with some of the 2D animation, um, I I thought the end credits were were really kind of uh, beautiful and and inventive and and well done. Oh, okay. Well, so, anyway, uh, yeah. but but that's stream. It's streaming. It, it's uh, Nimona. It, it's streaming on uh, Netflix. Uh, you could check it out there. It generally has gotten very good reviews. So uh, you know, I'm going to tell people. I thought it was meh. It was okay. Okay. Um, beautiful <laughs> okay. looking movie, uh, but it, it didn't really resonate with me, but it might resonate with other people. So check that out. Okay. Um, I continue to watch episodes of Jack Ryan. There you go. That have been dropping on uh, Amazon prime. It's uh, season four, the final season. Um, I also watched uh, a bunch of episodes of a show um called London Kills. Uh, and here's the synopsis. Following the detectives of an elite murder investigation squad in London, the team is led by an experienced detective inspector, David Bradford, whose wife has been missing for the past three months, a case he has been unable to solve. Um, so this is uh, Hugo Spear as David uh, Bradford. You got Sharon Small as Vivian Cole, uh, Bailey Patrick as Rob Brady, uh, Tori Allen Martin as Billy Fitzgerald. Uh, it, you know, it's it's a good cast. It, it's sort of a procedural. They're solving a murder every episode, uh, but the overall arc for the season has to do with the missing wife of the detective inspector. So that's woven through the episodes. Um, I, I've enjoyed it. Uh, so you can check that out. Uh, I've been watching that on Acorn TV through uh, Amazon Prime. Nice. And then Luther. Mm -hmm. You remember Luther? Yes. Luther stars uh, Idris Elba. And I got to tell you, Idris Elba is a great actor. 100%. I just I've really enjoyed him in just about everything he's he's done. Mm -hmm. Um he is um he's just got a great presence and um Here's the synopsis of Luther. Luther's a brilliant but emotionally impulsive detective who is tormented by the dark side of humanity while hunting down murderers. Once the self-destructive detective knows the killer's identity, it becomes a psychological duel between predator and prey. Luther must grapple with the intensity of both his job and his personal life as the two become intertwined. The wildly popular a Golden Globe winning crime drama series is created by Neil Cross and stars Idris Elba as DCI John Luther. So, you know, I've enjoyed the Luther series. So season five, uh, I stumbled upon it and we watched it. Uh, totally loved it. And then back for season three is the right. Just gemstones on Hulu. <laughs> okay. Have you watched this show? I haven't. No. Oh my gosh. This is absolutely a hilarious show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and here's the synopsis. Well into the second generation of a grand televangelist tradition, the world famous gemstone family is living proof that worship pays dividends in all sizes. Patriarch, Eli, 
the man most responsible for the tremendous success of the family's megachurch is in mourning over the loss of his wife. Jesse, the eldest of the three grown gemstone siblings, looks to lead his, uh, in his father's footsteps, but finds his past sins jeopardizing the family ministry. Next in line comes middle sister Judy, who secretly lives with her fiance and dreams of escaping the gemstone compound. Rounding out the dysfunctional trio is pseudo-hipster Kelvin, the youngest of the preachers, and a thorn in Jesse's side. As the family battles numerous threats to their renowned religious empire, they continue to spread the good word and make a solid buck doing so. Now, I got to tell you, Al John, this is a show created by Danny McBride. Yes. He plays Jesse he plays Gemstone. Jeff. Yes. Uh, Edie uh, Patterson plays Judy Gemstone. Adam Devine plays Kelvin Gemstone. And John Goodman is Eli Gemstone. Uh, Cassidy Freeman plays uh, Danny McBride's wife, Amber Gemstone. It's it's hysterical. How could this it's, not be funny? Because I mean, John is John Goodman. Of course, is uh, literally he's a gem. Uh, he really is. But also, I'm full of just worse humor today. Also, uh, Danny McBride is funny, 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 funny. Well, so. this is a hysterical show. It's on Hulu. If you've got the Disney Plus bundle, check it out on Hulu. Uh, it will not disappear. Uh, it will not uh, at all disappoint you. Uh, and again, uh, it's season uh, season three is what's dropping. So if you haven't watched this show, watch season one and season two. You're going to be rolling. It's so funny. There you go. Actually, that, that's yeah. it for me for this week. Awesome. Awesome. What have you been watching? Not a whole lot. I, I had some uh, guests come in this week, so we were doing some bourbon <laughs> bourbon tasting, if you know what I mean, Dave. Uh, awesome. Yeah, I we're love doing that. some bourbon tasting. But uh, what I have been doing is uh, in my quest, uh, and this is now the uh, third week maybe of uh, getting Indiana Jones rewatches out of the way so we could enjoy the new Indiana Jones movie here at the house. And uh, we've been watching with my wife, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which is the fourth installment of the franchise with Shia LaBeouf, the boof. And um, man, it's not as bad as I remember it. It's actually pretty decent. It's um, I remember watching it, and Dave, let me tell you, as I rewatched it, I go, I don't even remember some of this stuff. That's how much of a mark it left on me initially, and I don't know if I was just turned off um, in 2008 when I saw it originally and it i just kind of purged my mind you know how sometimes that that happens yeah and, yeah. Uh, and so i'm watching going hey this isn't bad at all i mean um and she loved it so there you go but i tell you i uh you talk about career suicide which shia labeouf did after this film and kind of criticizing its film and uh and really being on the outs with steven spielberg who really took a shine to him and he's been in so many spielberg projects it's like that's a really, you know, promoting the film and criticizing it openly. <laughs> it's like, and, and and Harrison Ford saying, kid, you, you just need to just relax, bro. <laughs> you know, and well, that was yeah, but we haven't seen much of Shia LaBeouf uh, <laughs> uh, much since well, then. And there you go. There you go. Yeah. Uh, also, I've been checking out um, on Audible, which is a lot of fun. Um uh, some books and this is one which is no is a four-letter word by chris jericho and a lot of people know chris jericho from his involvement 
as a professional wrestling champion, uh, entertainer, rock star, uh, game show host, but he really is just a, a lot of fun. And this particular book is about how I failed at spelling, but succeeded in life. It's kind of a, a guide. Um, I wouldn't say it's a self-help guide, but it's kind of a inspirational guide of stories that he's willing to share about him being tenacious and having intestinal fortitude. And after being rejected many, many times, how he was able to move past that type of rejection. So if you're into kind of inspirational stories, also uh, lessons learned, uh, check out Noah's a four letter word. Uh, Chris reads it in his own words on audible. And I think it's great when you can have the author read the book in his words, because you get to hear the inflections and the type of things um, with the stories. So uh, check that out as well. And of course, another guilty pleasure, the mask singer um, catching up on the mask <laughs> singer. And it, it's funny how these people come on board and they make these ama- amazing costumes and they sing and they sometimes, they oftentimes surprise, but I often am, am listening to the guests, the panel of judges there going, you know, are you, are you just throwing out just weird names just to throw people off track because they're the worst guesses in all of humanity <laughs> in terms of uh, guessing these celebrities, but it is a fun show. Uh, the mass singer. So there you go. Hopefully I'll be able to catch up with Indiana Jones with you, Dave, and we'll talk about it as well as uh, uh, get a couple other things under my belt. Uh, I want to watch a little mermaid this week and I got to get out there and see it. So yeah, I, I've got a, a bunch of films that I really want to see in, in the theater that I need to catch up on. And I am going to go see Elemental, especially with Matt Mason's comments, because I, you know, I, I have total respect for his opinions. And if he thought it was a good movie, that 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 has a lot of weight in my book. Yeah. Yeah. And I, like I said, it, I enjoyed it as well. And I will rewatch it, you know, much like I did uh, Super Mario Brothers. I enjoyed that. So um, okay. Go over there, check it out. Hey, what have you been watching? What have you been reading, listening, checking out? I think I'll probably post a couple albums. I'm, I'm uh, new records. I'm putting myself through uh, listening. So uh, please reach out over social media and email and let us know, and we'll check it out in a future episode of Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. All right, Indy got knocked out. By Red Door, Insidious the Red Door. How about that? $15.2 million opening day. And uh, Dave, you know I'm a big fan of the Insidious uh, horror franchise. The latest <laughs> yes, installment. Uh, yeah, the latest installment, uh, which is on my watch list too. Uh, blue expectations on opening day with $15.2 million gross. A figure that includes $5 million in Thursday previews. Horror entries usually face front-loaded weekend performances, uh, but this, once again, is a Blumhouse production, so it's doing really good uh, for the opening uh, weekend. And uh, it toppled last week's Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny uh, in there as well. Um, Dave, uh, Indiana Jones uh, just earned $7.6 million on Friday um, with the second weekend total round of $26 million. Um, the American growth should reach 120 million through Sunday, according to Variety. Dave, um, Indiana Jones is uh, expensive. Would you, at this point, call it a flop? No, not at all. No, 
Okay. You know, I, I think it's, uh, I, I don't think you can, uh, because it's the kind of film that's going to have legs, I think, uh, especially from word of mouth. You know, when I saw it, uh, in the IMAX theater, uh, it was a fairly full theater, uh, all things considered, uh, because typically when I do see films in IMAX, it's not a full theater. This was a fairly full theater and, uh, there was an applause at the end. That wow. says a lot. It does that say a lot. That, that it says a lot because the average person in there enjoyed the movie. And I enjoyed it, too. I think it's a good summer film. Now, you know, there may be people saying, man, I'm just going to wait for it to come on to, you know, Disney Plus to watch it. Well, I think it's a mistake because I think films like this should be seen on a big screen. You know that I say this all the time. You know, the filmmakers make these movies for you to see in a theater. Go to the movie theater and see these films. It's a great experience to see it on a giant screen. Yeah, you know, it's like I talked about when watching, you know, your favorite bands perform live in whatever venue. It's different when you experience it the way it was intended versus watching it stream or play a a video of it, uh, of a concert. It's a different experience. So, um yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. Um, Disney Pixar's Elemental looks to take fourth in the box office after two, earning $2.6 million on Friday, recouping. It has no hope of recouping its $200 million production budget. Uh, and then, of course, Spider Man Across the Spider Verse, aiming for its fifth projected $7.7 million growth, uh, gross over its sixth weekend. It's slowly going to be it's just like inches away from surpassing guardians of the galaxy volume three to be the second highest grossing domestic release of the year which bodes well for sony animation and marvel how about that it's awesome it's amazing yeah hey uh we need to give a little shout out uh did we give a shout out to bob gurr yet or did we earlier i can't no we did not hey you know uh i got an email saying that bob gurr uh, the inventor of the Gertini, as well as so many other uh, Disney contraptions, including uh, the monorail and so much more. A, uh, he's got a video podcast coming out on YouTube. And uh, as you and I both know, and Dave, you've you've uh, worked with Bob. Uh, you, you've, you've been hanging out with Bob for many years at the Walt Disney Company. And uh, he is just a, a living legend. And it's great. Well, for him I, I, not, I never worked with Bob. Oh, OK. Bob had long uh, been gone from the company. Uh, and so I didn't work with him, but I've known him and I certainly spent time with him. I interviewed him uh, for the uh, Claude Coates book. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I chat with him periodically when I run into him. So he's a terrific guy. Well, what, what, yeah. Well, you see, when I say worked with, I mean, yes, in your book, because <laughs> I know he's in your book. But yeah, I mean, um, what a what a great guy! I think he's a he's one of the goats, right? The the greatest of all time and a national treasure. So uh, I think uh, you know, check out Bob Gurr's new podcast coming out on YouTube, and he holds court. He's just a great person. I was I was uh, fortunate enough to hang out with him uh, a few times during a few different Disney events, and he is just wonderful just a wonderful human being so uh and i'm sure he's going to share a lot of stories of him working for disney and universal and the different uh, theme parks and and other projects he's been involved in and over the course of his (laughs) storied career um so bob there you go uh check out that video podcast uh you know you and i are huge fans of the beatles and recently ringo Starr 
talks about a new Beatles track and turning 85 at his peace-loving birthday celebration. And this is from Variety. Uh, it was written about he had his his uh, peace and love 83rd year uh, anniversary party in Beverly Hills Park. A bunch of people are out there. His brother-in-law, Joe Walsh, of course, my favorite eagle. Uh, so we had an eagle and a beetle. Uh, for that event, um, making music and having fun and talks about the brand new Beatles single as uh, Paul McCartney recently did. He took the time to talk about it. It is not a AI driven project per se. Um, it's not like we're pretending anything. It's actually John's voice that we're putting on this single and by, and Paul's voice and playing the bass, George on rhythm guitar, me on drums. So they were able to extract those tracks from the demo and, release it as a fully formed song from pre-existing material. That is awesome. I, I think this is fantastic. Um, I have no problem with this whatsoever because they're using AI in a way that's not synthetically creating something, you know, or recreating somebody's voice. They're, they're using AI to extract John Lennon's voice and George Harrison's rhythm guitar. You know, they're 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 extracting it from a demo tape and then remixing the whole thing into a finished song. Uh, and I think this, this is this is great. I've heard uh, Paul McCartney talk about this, and I absolutely think when the original creators are involved with a project like this and they're using the cutting edge technology to finish something. Uh, you, you know, this is, this is great. You know, this is, you know, 60 years after the, the band started playing together, here they are putting out their final track, you know, or as they're calling it their last track uh, as a band. And, you know, as long as everybody had their blessing on it, why not? Right. I think it's awesome because uh, as you're right, you know, the, the original members that are still alive are, are putting this together and bringing the pre-existing material back to life. And I think fans have clamored for it. And I think they're going to be doing a lot of the same stuff with Van Halen and Prince and so many other things because there are vaults and vaults of those recordings that have never been released that the fans would absolutely love to hear. And um, that way their music continue to live on. And I think that's yeah, great. And, and I think, I think it's fascinating to hear different versions of the same song. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 100%. You, you know, I, I remember uh, hearing the demo for uh, colors of the wind from po Pocahontas. Yes. I loved the demo track. Yeah. More than the finished song. Yeah. And Disney so, can do that. You know, it's, yep. a, it's the same song. It's just done differently. Yeah. And, well, and I, I think all these bands have tons and tons of recordings uh, in their vaults that I think audiences that love those bands would love to hear those different variations of the same song. I, I 100%. I mean, I've bought the Ramones box set and the police and Billy Joel and all these things. And I just want to hear, I'm one of those geeks that love to buy the physical media like DVDs and stuff. So I could see the bonus features. Now Disney's doing us a solid by putting some bonus features on the actual streaming platform. 
but I love to go behind the scenes. I love alternative takes. I love all of that stuff. I just want more and more. When you love something, you just want more of it. And uh, we want more Beatles. And I think a lot of people will be using this technology moving forward to bring some of that stuff to life. I would love to hear, uh, you know, these demo tracks and remixes and different things like that, because um, some of the best stuff I've heard are the demos and it brings new light and new appreciation for the actual song that was released. Um, So very cool. I, I love it. So, you know, the article says the new song was the third one that the three surviving Beatles have attempted in the 90s based on a Lennon song scraps as they were doing Free as a Bird and Real Love with producer Jeff Lynn yep. for the anthology project. Yeah. So why revive it now? Uh, Ringo said, I don't know. Paul must have had a slow day, Star quipped. <laughs> he says, quote, uh, you know, the track we did, do you want to work on that? Star did. So McCartney said, sent him the files. Uh, Star said, I drummed on it and I sang on it. And then Giles Martin flew to LA with McCartney to put strings on it. It is moving because the four of us are there and there won't be ever again. Oh my gosh. So, that's so nice. You know, yeah. So it's, it's terrific. You know, uh, by the way, I worked with Giles Martin, uh, met with him a number of times on a possible project at Disney. Super nice guy. I mean, nice. just incredibly nice. Uh, yeah. And it's so great that he's following in his father's footsteps and he's uh, really sort of a go to guy for the surviving Beatles. So I guess he would be maybe the sixth Beatle. Right? I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like his father was the fifth Beatles. I mean, maybe he's the sixth Oh, no, one. no, no. Brian, Brian Epstein. Uh, right. Oh, Brian Epstein, yeah, right. Yeah, Brian Epstein. Epstein is the fifth Yeah. Uh, so who knows? I, I, I mean, I, I listen. I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to uh, to listening to that song. Oh, and, that's awesome. And, you know, and, and Ringo says it's not all AI. Right, right. It isn't. You because- know, it's not. It, it's not. He says it's not like we're pretending anything. He says that's actually John's voice, yeah. Paul's voice, and uh, and bass playing, and George on rhythm guitar, and me on the drums, and uh, the two things that are new are Paul's bass and me on the drums yeah yeah so i i think it's fantastic when they're able to do this stuff you know this reminds me a little bit of of destino at disney yeah because it was an unfinished film from 1946 that salvador dolly john hench walt disney were all working on right yeah and and when we finished that in the early 90s uh, excuse me in the early 2000s um the uh, the only way you could have done that is if you had one of the filmmakers there and Dolly had passed, Disney had passed, but John Hench, who worked closely with both of them on that film, was still alive and was still part of it and came in and consulted uh, throughout the entire production of us completing Destino. And uh, and therefore it's valid because one of the original filmmakers was still there. That's authenticity. That's what it is. It's authenticity. And and that's what you you have to have. What I would hate to see is somebody come along with AI and recreate you know, Paul, Ringo, George, and John's voices and playing and and make a brand new song 
after they're all gone. Yeah, that, yeah. That would be inauthentic and 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 fraudulent. You yeah, know what I mean? Right, right. And 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 it's out there. You know, we we've seen um, stuff. I've seen recently going under the whole Beatles thing. You remember they did the Traveling Wilburys uh, album, and they replaced all the vocals with John Lennon. I think they did like a Beatles version of them doing um, Travel with Care or Handle Me with Care. And I, I, it was interesting for me to listen to as they extracted Roy Orbison's vocal for John Lennon's vocal. I was like, mm, it's, it's interesting, but it's authentic. And and look, people have been trying to do this stuff for years, decades now, because I remember, you remember uh, Natalie Cole's version of Unforgettable that she did the duet with Nat King Cole? Right. Right. You know, I mean, that's authentic because she always wanted to do a duet with her father and then put this wonderful track. I mean, it still brings chills to me when you hear father and daughter singing together. And I think this is just an evolution of that concept. And I think uh, it's authentic, you know, and we could have other discussions about AI and the use of deep fake technology, you know, as we look at these different projects from Lucasfilm or Marvel or Disney or whatever, where they try to do that stuff. And even The Flash, where they kind of used, I guess, deep fake AI to bring back Christopher Reeve, you know, spoiler, you know, you know, and some different stuff into that film. But yeah, it's all very interesting but, but, stuff. But I will say that was different because th- there was a reason for it. Yes. And there was no speaking. You're seeing the individual. Yeah, yeah. Right? And and to me, I didn't have a problem with that. Okay? Mm-hmm. If they all of a sudden recreated Christopher Reeves with technology and had him speaking and acting in a scene with somebody, you know, that, that to me would be problematic, uh, especially if there was no family member or survivor involved with the process. Like Billy Lord being involved in bringing, bringing Carrie Fisher back to life for those uh, sequel trilogy films. Right. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's the authentic uh, nature of it. But anyway, um, speaking of someone with deep ties to Disney, you know, Sir Elton John, uh, did his final stop of his farewell tour, Yellow Brick Road Tour in Stockholm. After five years and 330 farewell concerts, he's calling it a day from touring. And uh, if anyone deserves a break, it's Sir Elton John. I tell you, he is, this is going to go down, Dave, as one of my most missed opportunities of my life to watch one of my heroes, John uh, Elton John, uh, perform live because... I learned so much about songwriting, you know, um, as a, as a up and coming songwriter for, for years, uh, back in my twenties, I studied the work of Elton John and Billy Joel and sting a lot. They played a huge role in, in my songwriting and, uh, I've never got a chance to see him live and I never will. So, well, never say never, because I never believe it when a band says <laughs> it's their final tour, their final concert. I don't believe it. And, and, and you want to know something? What's that? All, all these performers get a tremendous amount of energy from the crowds they play to. That's right. And that's something they're going to miss. Yes. And I would not be surprised if in a year or two, Elton decides to do five concerts at Caesars or, uh, yeah. you know, something like that. Oh, he should do a residency. 100%. I, yeah. I know he'll be back. He, you, you can't have a performer just stop. Yeah. The guy has been touring for decades. He's a performer. He, he lives for the audience. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and and all of these performers do, you know, and I, I I personally don't believe it because every time somebody says it's the final concert, it's never the final concert. There's always going to be more concerts for crying out loud. When when half of the Leonard Skinner band was killed in a plane crash, there was still Leonard Skinner going out and playing. That's true. You know? That's true. I mean, if, you know, for for years, and and even with Ronnie Van Zant, was it Ronnie Van yeah. Zant that just passed away? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, he passed away. I think within the last uh, six or eight months, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, the Leonard Skinner band is probably going to continue to play. You're yeah, you're you're right. <laughs> you know, so I I just don't believe it. You know, so uh, but I'm I'm glad that he did his, you know, goodbye Yellow Brick Road tour. Uh, but I just feel like, you know, take a break for a couple of years, but you'll be back. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, mark my words. You'll be back. Oh, there you go. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think. Uh, well, if anyone's out there listening, uh, you know, please uh, let me know. Uh, that would be amazing to for me to check out Elton John live. Never have uh Always had opportunities, but uh, always was working. And uh, so take time out to see your legends, you know. And it wasn't Ronnie Van Zant. I think there was um, there was another another member. Uh, it, it, was it was the brother. It was the brother. The other brother. Was yeah. It? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, Ronnie Van Zant was killed in the, in the plane uh, crash. In the plane crash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, uh, in not so happy news, and this is very very sad. The voice of Mulan, uh, who traversed the Pacific. Also saying a love before time and for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon performed it at the Oscars in 2001, passed away uh, with years of depression, battling depression at the age of 48. Um, Coco, Coco, Coco Lee. Coco Lee. Um, it's this, uh, this so was sad. a very, very sad story to, oh. to see. You know, I, I'm. I, it's just so sad when when somebody like this takes their own life. It, it's just it's it's heartbreaking. It is super sad. Um, uh, you know, it's a real thing. You know, people people battling mental illness and depression. Um, they you, you need to know that you're not alone in this. There's people, all kinds of people dealing with these things every single day. But it's important as friends and loved ones that we see the signs and reach out. Um, because sometimes people just don't know how. Uh, or people may be unwilling. They might feel like they're in a in a hole all by themselves, and they're you're, they're not. And uh, it is definitely sad. And she was one of the biggest singers in Asia, and it was uh, you know, it's sad to see her, uh, you know, take her life. You know, just to totally cut short at the age of forty eight. Very sad. It's it's awful. It yeah. really is. Yeah. Well, someone who lived a long life at the age of one hundred and one. Marcia Dean, B-movie actress, actress known for the Quartermass Experiment, um, passes at the age of 101. Oh my gosh, what Talk a about long career! A, a life. great life. Oh my god, great life, huh? Yeah, she died at, on the 23rd, June 23rd, as we recorded this at her apartment in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Um, she did tons of B-movie work in the Queen of <laughs> Lippert. Um, and so, once again, maybe you don't know the name, but you know her films. She acted with Richard Arlen in the Grand Canyon in 1949, with Reeves and Superman in the Moment in 1951, and countless others, Dave. What a long life. 
really incredible and uh you know leaves behind uh really i think uh an amazing body of work yeah. uh she was in so many films you know and some of them are kind of forgettable but uh, you know what uh so what uh there's still some of these are are entertaining as can be and um you know she she lived uh, in the hollywood hills for like six six decades yeah. before she moved to dana point uh and uh, I mean, my God, when you sit here and look at all of these uh, films that she's done, mm-hmm. it, it's really it's truly a, a, an incredible body of work. Certainly. Speaking of about an incredible uh, body of work, Br- Betta St. John, actress in South Pacific and Dreamwife, passes at the age of 93. Another long life, Dave. Uh, she also appeared with Mar- uh, Marlene Dietrich in Destry uh, Rides Again with Christopher Lee in two British horror films with Gordon Scott and a couple of Tarzan movies. Wow. Oh my gosh. What a life. Yeah. And, and you know, this is a, a person that maybe the name doesn't uh, uh, sound familiar, but when you see her picture, boy, you sit there and go, I've seen her before. If you're, if you're a, a film fan and really love the movies, you'll, you'll look at her picture and go, Oh yeah, I, I, I know who she is. I've seen her, you know, she's been in a ton of films and had an incredible career, um, you know, worked with uh, Cary Grant and Deborah Kerr. Uh, I mean, you talk in dream, about in dream wife. Yeah. I mean, that's an amazing fit picture. I mean, you know, these were, as we say, they were smoke shows <laughs> back in the yeah, day. They were. You know, I mean, you know, you're in that movie dream wife and Cary Grant. I mean, these are living legends and, and now she's passed. So I go in and revisit uh, the great works there of these fine uh, actors and actresses, um, they will be missed. And now it's time for our featured interview. Let's open up the green room doors and welcome Matt O'Callaghan, animator, director, man of so many hats right here on Skull Rock Podcast. Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, here we are again. We've got another fantastic guest. I don't know how we keep doing this. We've got animation director, storyboard artist, show creator, co-producer, executive producer. This guy's worn more hats than I can think. And uh, his name is Matt O'Callaghan. He's a good friend. Matt, welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. Hey there, Dave. As you as you can hear, Matt, our studio audience is going nuts because you got this Paul Newman look going. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Well, Paul Newman's my guy. So anyway, good to see you, Dave. Well, John, nice to see you guys. Nice thank to you. see you. Hey, listen, th- thanks for coming on the show, Matt. And, and, you know, one of the things I always ask our guests when they come on is, you know, how how did you get into animation? Because I know, you know, we've been friends a long time. I know you you grew up in Chicago, Second City. Um, you know, now it's called Chirac. But, uh, you know, uh, how, how did you leave Chicago and come out to Los Angeles and and, and go to CalArts? Because you were part of the CalArts character animation program. So tell us that story. Well, luckily, I left long, long ago before all the violence started. But um, anyway, I am in between Capone and the current violent uh, streak. But um, I, you know, my 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 story is probably not going to be that uh, original because I was just like this little kid who liked to draw cartoons, who um, wasn't very good at math in school. I was always drawing, 
And uh, at some point, I think I was really around 12 years old. I just got the bug. You know, I just, I'd always watched um, a lot of cartoons. I was always, this may be a little different than a lot of guys my in my um, group. I didn't really gravitate to comics. I kind of only gravitated or gravitated the things that moved. So I was very into just cartoons. And then one day I told my parents, they go, Hey, I want to be an animator. And uh, they looked at me and I think it would have been easier if I said, Hey, I want to be an astronaut (laughs) 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 because you know, who knows what an animator is back in Chicago, Illinois, you know, in the, you know, mid seventies. So, um, but anyway, um, not to be discouraged, my dad, who had a lot of art, um, he was actually a terrific artist. He just had to make a living back then, and, and uh, the art was not, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a trade that he could get involved in back there. But uh, he sort of recognized it as a real thing, and he kind of encouraged me. And one day I went to, like, you know, uh, the school library and came back with this the name of the school, uh, Cal Arts. And we just started writing letters and getting brochures and and getting uh, and then the funny thing was when you get the brochure from CalArts, you probably remember this day, but uh, you get the little tiny brochure and it basically gives you you know there was a couple drawings in there and it told you what you needed for a portfolio and it's like all of a sudden there was life life drawing I'm like life drawing what is it? what is that you know that's like studying nude nude models I'm like geez where do you find nude models when you're 17 years old. So like any boy, I went to Playboy magazine <laughs> and started drawing um, out of that. And then those were a lot of the drawings I, I put in my uh, portfolio to uh, that and, you know, Bambi drawings. <laughs> but it was a combination of that. And that's how I got into CalArts. Well, let me ask you this. I want to back up for a sec because you said your dad was an artist. Was he like more of a fine artist? Did he paint in his free time and, and do that kind of thing? Yeah, he, he did uh, uh, pastels and oils and all kinds of stuff. It was uh, very impressive. And then my mom's father, which is just a quick, complete coincidence, um, was an elevator operator in downtown Chicago. Right. You know, the old old things with the iron gates and everything. And, yeah. uh, he was a fantastic artist. And um, so I got I think I got a little bit, a uh, few genes from both sides of the family. But yeah. That's and and what what'd your dad do for a living? Because you said he, he couldn't make a living out of his art, but but he, he was he had another career, but he was doing art in his free time. Yeah, he was in the printing business, which was, you know, printing the printing ink business in Chicago was like the, you know, the movie industry and, you know, Los Angeles, everything sure. was pr- printed in Chicago from magazines to, uh, you know, uh, beer cans. I mean, wow. did everything. So wow. he was in that business and that's what he ended up retiring at. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah. it's still, still a little bit of an artistic field, I think. You yeah, know, definitely. being a printer because you're dealing you're dealing with color and mixing colors and inks and all that stuff. So that that's that's awesome. So you you came out after high school. You came right to Cal Arts. Yeah, I graduated high school and um, you know had a little trunk and uh, you know flew out to Cal Arts and that you know and and you remember that there's no cell phones, nothing. You, you just get this uh, 
you know, I don't even know if it was an email or a call, like go to the airport and there'll be a guy there and he'll pick you up in a white van. It's like, what? Well, there wasn't even email then, (laughs) you know, there wasn't even email. Right. So, so it was like a phone call or a letter, you know, with, with with instructions. And, And so you went right from high school to Cal arts. How was that? Was that a bit of a culture shock for you? Yeah, it was extreme. Uh, it was very extreme. You know, CalArts is a very artsy liberal school, and I grew up in a you know in Chicago, but a sort of conservative uh, suburb. So it was uh, extremely different. But um, anyway, it was small, and and uh, you know we we navigated somehow. We navigated. Well, you know what it was. We we were in we were in the character animation program, so we were automatic pariahs at CalArts. Right. right. Because we were like commercial artists. We were shunned. Uh, Everybody else was doing conceptual art and painting and dancing nude and smearing on their bodies and doing all kinds of conceptual art. But we were doing, you know, we were training to be animators in really what was kind of looked down upon. Right. Yeah. And, um, but everybody, you know, sort of uh, stayed in their group and, I think a lot of those, you know, the people in our department got hired. So I'm not sure sure about the other part of the school, but uh, hopefully got they got hired as well. But yeah, it was it was a uh, very different, and we didn't even have a cafeteria. Isn't that crazy? You know, you go to colleges now and they have like food courts, and we have like yeah. a grill. You know, yeah. I mean? like a, well, actually, I, 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 in the school's defense, I will tell you they've refurbished the entire cafeteria, and, and it's actually really good. They have an executive chef there, uh, and cool. the food, the food's excellent. But you know, back when we were there, uh, we couldn't say that. <laughs> no, no, I think they had one of the fine art guys, you know, doing freelance on uh, the grill there. Yeah, so, yeah, it was a very different uh, situation, but yeah, so. Um, Tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about some of the teachers you had at Cal Arts and some of the classmates that you had. Well, um, you know, we had uh, uh, some of the old timers, which uh, I'm sure you've heard from, you know, other guys you've interviewed with like Elmer uh, Plummer and and Anderson and uh, um, Teehee and uh, more. What was his name? Uh, Bill, 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 Bill Moore, Moore, the design yeah. teacher. Yeah. Jack yeah. Hanna, Bob McRae. Yeah. 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 And, so, and then we had, and then we were, we, we were lucky enough to have all those nine old men coming up to do guest lectures like, you know, Frank and Ollie and Mark Davis and Ward Kimball. Yeah. That, that was a special time because, you know, there was a great, uh, um, you know, passing of the, of the, the wand over to us, whether we even knew it at the time, you know, we just thought they were a bunch of old guys from Disney Studios, and and but little by little, uh, you know, you learned of what they had to offer. It was it was pretty pretty amazing. But you know, I think a lot of guys might say they they learned a ton at Cal Arts, and and I think for me it was more about learning uh, sort of the language, the process. You know, uh, I don't know if I really really learned until I got hired at Disney, but. It was a great sort of, uh, you know, foundation for what we were going into at Disney. So, but, but it was pretty cool. And then we had, you know, great uh, classmates, uh, you know, Kathy Zelinsky and 
Dave Fuxima and Franz Vischer. And, you know, we, we had a lot of, uh, uh, you know, really lively, fun, you know, group of people. Everybody was young. Everybody was ener- energetic. Everybody was eager to learn. So it was a, it was a good group. There was a lot of enthusiasm and, and a yeah. lot of geeking out over animation. Yeah. Yeah. It really was. It was I, I don't know, remember what age you were when you had CalArts, but when I started, I was barely 18. And there, there were people in my class that were 24, 26 years old. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we had, what, 24 people maybe in the freshman class. It was very small. So it was quite a mix of, uh, of ages and, uh, you know, uh, it was yeah, very I, interesting. I had just turned 20 when I got there. Okay. You know? Yeah. Cause I had gone to a community college in New York for, uh, uh, a couple, well, like 18 months because when I got accepted at Cal arts, I, I, I dropped out and I worked full time and uh, for like eight months until I came to Cal arts. So, cause I needed to, I, you know, I had, I had to save up the dough. So, but, right. but, you know, when, when you look back, I, you, you said something very interesting because it's something that I've told people over the years that, you know, CalArts going through the program was really great because you did, you kind of learned the language and you got immersed in uh, sort of the, the world of animation of Disney animation because of the instructors were all veterans from Disney, but it was that first six months at the studio that you really learned yeah. everything. You really learn the ropes and you were kind of, it's like the John Wayne school of swimming. You got thrown in the deep end and you had to swim, you know, and you had to really sort of step up and show what you had. Right. Right. Yeah. And like I said, what I mean by the language um, is like, you know, I didn't know what in-betweens were layout or, you know, um, even what a peg bar was, you know, I didn't understand any of that stuff, video shoots, timing, you know, X sheets, I mean, you don't know any of that stuff when you're, right. you know, when you're just looking at cartoons, you know, from back in Chicago. So that's what I mean. Like you come in and you start learning about all this and, and you know, and it's a ton to learn. And then you, then you have to do your classes and a, uh, a student film, which of course is completely, you know, like overwhelming at, at that yeah. age. So, so there was a lot to learn in a very uh, short amount of time, but, um, like I said, once you kind of got a little bit of, you know, your footing a little bit, yet, like I said, I didn't really, really learn until I got hired over there. And that's now, what really did, did you did you get plucked out of uh, the program before you finished? I mean, in other words, were you offered a job uh, based on like one of your student films? Yeah. You know, I don't know if I would. Um, I'm proud about this, but um, I went two years and I, and there was kind of an unwritten rule. Like, you know, you were going there to work at Disney studios because um, at that time, as you remember, there weren't really that many choices out there in, in the world right. or yeah. um, to work. So, you know, you were, the people there went there because they knew it was a Disney uh, funded school and it was really a training, um, uh, you know, school for, um disney studios and so then there was this unwritten rule like once you got in there you know what i mean they there was kind of like they're not going to take freshmen so just forget about it so just work really hard the earliest they're gonna disney's gonna pull you out of there is after your sophomore year and so your freshman you know little short uh thing was um sort of no sound it was just 
pantomime and silent. And then your second uh, year, sophomore year, was you got to use voices and music and stuff like that. And then at the end of the second year is when they um, you were eligible, I guess you would say, to be um, pulled out by Disney or offered a job. So everybody was kind of just going for it. And uh, for me, I kind of figured that out, and I didn't really have a pleasant time at CalArts. So I really wanted to get out. So I put a, a ton of energy, everything I had in my student film, and sort of the back half of the year, the second semester, I just kind of didn't really focus too much on, on my classes and really just uh, focus on my film. Because I figured at the end of the day, that's what they're looking at. Right, they're not, right. They're not going to look at my uh, my designs from uh, Bill Moore's class. They're, they're really just going to look at your student film. Yeah. So that's what I focused on. And, and uh, I was fortunate to be offered a job after my second year. So it was great. Why didn't you have a good time at CalArts? Uh, you know, it's kind of, kind of a, you know, I, I guess I, I felt, you know, it was weird. Like I felt like a little bit of a, a out of my element. Like I didn't you know, fish out of fish out of water. Right. Yeah. I did not yeah. fit in like, uh, there were a lot of groups, which yeah. I won't, I won't identify, but I didn't really fit into any one particular group. So I just kind of like, kind of was isolated and, uh, um, you know, uh, and then I just kind of focused on that. I did find a girlfriend, which of course, you know, because you, uh, rented a room from her. I did. <laughs> I did. Yes. <laughs> so I, I did find a girlfriend. And so that was helpful, but I didn't quite be, felt, I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere with, with any group, which was unusual considering in high school, I didn't really have trouble fitting in, but at Pell Arts. I was definitely felt like I, yeah, you know what? I, I, I gotta tell you, I, I kind of felt the same way when I was at Cal arts. I think it's a city thing. I was from New York. You were from Chicago. You know, I, I think there, there's a little bit of uh, alienation that goes on when you go to other parts of the country. I really do. You know, yeah. I, I've always felt that way. So right. maybe yeah. that was, maybe so. that was it, but I had a good time at Cal arts. Oh, so. good. I, I'm glad you did. I, uh, I did not. But, All right. Uh, but so you got you got the hell out of there because Disney offered you a job. Yeah. Yeah. It was really and, great. And and when you when you took that job, what was what was your first week like? Did did you work under Eric Larson like a lot of people did? Yeah, I think there was a there was a group of twelve of us, and they called them interns. And then you you know there was a, a period of time I don't even remember what it was whether it was you know three months or whatever, but there was a a, a little bit of a you know training, and and then you you had classes from Americ, which were terrific, and uh, and I don't even remember all the training, but I do remember we did these little tests, and at the time um, they were gearing up to do. Uh, Mickey's Christmas Carol. So everybody got model sheets from the characters that were going to be in that. And then we had to come up with a little, um, you know, test with one of those characters. And, um, and then when we picked our character and, and at the time I picked Willie the giant um, to do my little animation test. And then at the time we were allowed to um, wander a little bit and, and then we were told who the directing animators were. 
and that we can go visit them for, you know, 10, 15 minutes while they, you know, flipped our scene or gave us a couple notes. And so we would go around to, you know, the Mark Hens and the Randy Cartwrights and, and, uh, um, and, uh, I uh, stumbled into, you know, Glenn Keane's office and showed him my Willie the Giant test. I didn't know that he was going to be doing Willie the Giant, but, um, you know, and he gave me some pointers, you know, pointers. Just, it was all very casual. It wasn't, you know, uh, a big connection or anything. But, and then from what I understood was at some point they were um, asked who they wanted to work with and they pulled who they wanted to work with. And uh, I was fortunate that, um, Glenn sort of pulled me out and asked me to kind of work with him. And so that began a, a very long uh, friendship and uh, collaboration with Glenn, which was, uh, which was great fun. And uh, it really worked out well for me, just considering, you know, you got one of the best in the world teaching you. The did, uh, did you, so. did you know that at the time? Did you know he was sort of like the up and coming guy? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, definitely he had uh, the reputation already. Yeah. Um, I think coming off of Fox and the Hound and everything, which we weren't even there, but uh, he was sort of a young superstar, definitely. But he didn't really, you know, like everybody, there were a lot of people there that had great reputations. But, you know, until you actually sat there and watched him draw over you or, you know, or you, he handed you a scene that he was working on, he flipped it, you know, your eyes would just bug out of your head. I mean... You know, you're, you're, you know, in the presence of greatness. I mean, there was just no doubt about it. But, but I think also it's worth pointing out, incredibly nice guy who's grounded. Wouldn't you say I that? He, I thought he was a pain in the ass. He was meaner than all. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he really is. He, he's, he's really just an incredibly nice guy for a tremendous talent. And, you know, when you think about people like that, sometimes it's very easy for them to get huge egos. You know, and I never oh. I never felt like Glenn had that. I, I think Glenn was very grounded. That was just my opinion. I, you know, whenever I chatted with him, he was always super nice. No, he was. And he he's continued to be that way up until right now. I mean, he there's you know, he's humble. He's grounded. He's um, approachable. You know, some guys uh, I never met met Milt call, but I heard he was completely unapproachable. Like he was, um, I mean, I, this uh, yeah. is what I've heard, but, um, you know, Glenn was very different and uh, I think he was, you know, he's just a, just a terrific guy. So. Yeah. He was one, he was one of the guys, you know, one of the animators, you know? Yep, and, definitely. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so he, he pulled you onto his unit and you worked on Mickey's Christmas Carol and you were doing, uh, you were working on Willie the giant. <laughs> yeah, that was, so you already had, you kind of had, a, you had a leg up on it because you were already used to drawing the character. Uh, yeah, I didn't exactly draw very well when I was on my <laughs> own, but uh, um, it was great fun working with Glenn. And, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, what was really great about working with Glenn was, you know, when you look at animation drawings and you look at um, scenes, you know, a lot of them are very tight, very clean. And you assume that that's how you're supposed to draw. And Glenn kind of broke that mold, you know. He really drew, I mean, he was extremely precise, but his drawings were rough and loose and smooth. And, and um, you know, that really w was very freeing 
as a young artist. You didn't, we weren't like so, you know, uh, bogged down on making it so tight and so perfect and so on model that you could still be loose and with your animation. And that was a tremendous lesson right there. And that, that to me, that was really about uh, drawing loose and fast and uh, capturing the essence of the action and then tying it down. Right. 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 Absolutely. And Glenn taught me many, 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 many things. But one of the things I remember him saying to me was um, draw the acting, draw the expression first, then you can put it on model. If you did it the other way around, you're just copying from the model sheet. And you'll never get, you know, you'll never get the expression. So that was a, a thing I still use to this day. Yeah. There's, I mean, that was, that just was an eye opener, right? A, a piece of advice that just sticks with you through your entire career. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So, and, uh, and many, and, many more things like that, but that was one for sure. And how was how was your experience on Mickey Mickey's Christmas Carol? Any anything come of mind uh, from working on that picture? Uh, you know what? It was the first thing I ever worked on, um, and at the end, it was the first thing I ever got a credit on. And so it it's just a very special thing. You know, is it the greatest uh, thing ever? No, but um, it's still it's enjoyable. Charm- it's it's a charming, yeah. enjoyable short. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's sort of a Christmas, uh, you know, a Christmas special that you want to go back to every year. Like, you know, the peanuts, Charlie Brown's Christmas, you know? Yeah. It's short. It's, it's, um, yeah, it has some very nice things in it. I had, you know, just, you know, I just, a lot of these things, these old things, you know, you look at them and you just are you flooded with emotion because you remember that time the, the people there. We got to work in the animation building on the Disney lot. That that's pretty incredible. You know, yeah. how many people do you work with now where you encounter like a new cruise and and new projects and and they've never they may have worked for Disney for 25 years, but they've never worked in that building. That's so that, right. that's that's pretty cool. It so is. A, it is. We we were sort of the last generation to be in that building. You know, before we were thrown off the studio lot into a warehouse. We were exactly. (laughs) We, we, we got thrown out. That's, that's for sure. But yeah, it was, it was a special time. And, uh, um, you know, I got great memories of of that and a lot of the people there. It was really, really great. Great start. Now from Mickey's Christmas Carol, did you continue to work with Glenn or did you just uh, move on to the black cauldron and, and get absorbed by another unit? Yeah. You know what? There was a little, um, aside from the major titles we did, uh, you know, I continued to work with Glenn cause I, I was technically like his assistant. So I kind of traveled with him and then he and, um, uh, John Lasseter started working on the, where the wild things are test, the first computer test. Right. And so luckily um, I was in on that. So it's just like the three of us working on this thing. Um, so that was a lot of fun to work on. And um, and then after that, I think um, uh, it was a great mouse detective. And that was kind of, you're talking about Black Cauldron. <clears throat> so Glenn goes on to mouse detective as a character designer. And right. I'm kind of with him as his assistant, but there's really not much to do. 
you know, other than a couple of model sheets and everything. So, so I'm like going. Yeah, I was so going to say, so you're jumping in to help on Black Cauldron. No. To no. dodge that. No, to dodge that bullet. <laughs> I said, I said, I got to find something to do. So I went to John and Ron, I go, hey, because uh, I don't know a storyboard. I go, hey, is there anything I could do to help you out? And, you know, and because um, I'm looking for something to do to stay on the life raft of <laughs> most right. detective. And then uh, he was great. He goes, you know what? Um, storyboarding this section here when Dawson gets off the little carriage at the beginning and I was just doing, going over some staging things. He goes, you want to take like these 12 panels and draw them up for me? And I go, sure. And so I did that. And then uh, a year and a half later, I was, you know, I've been, I mean, that was the beginning of storyboarding. So uh, I had uh, those 12 panels became 12 more and 12 more and then sequences. And, and like I said, uh, a year and a half later, um, I was still, I was, you know, I've been boarding all that time. It was great. And, and, and did you do any character animation on it? Yeah. So it was very interesting um, because it was a completely different route than most of the animators that, um, that I went in on. So storyboarding was really great because it really, uh, well, taught me many, many, many things. One was just, you know, storytelling. And back in those days, we didn't really have a script. A little side story was, you know, John and Ron had the, the idea, right. And they did beat boards. Um, and, um, they did beat boards and then, our little group would get together and he'd pitch the beat boards and they were maybe on like three of those big, uh, yeah, the know, four, the four by, yeah, the four yeah. by eight storyboards. Yeah. Yeah. And then basically he generally just assigned, you know, beats like, here, you do this, you do this, you do that. And so we were like, that was it. You had a piece of paper and a paragraph and you started boarding and writing dialogue and constructing and pitching and, that's how we made that film. It was pretty cool. It was totally different. Um, but then what I was saying is my route was here. I want to be an animator and to, to kind of avoid the black cauldron and stay with these guys. I said, let me storyboard. So I started storyboarding, but what that taught me was that you had, you didn't have like, you know, a ream of paper, you know, 120 pieces of paper to, to animate something, you had to tell an, you know, an expression or whatever in one, two, three panels. You had to choreograph things and do the acting in two, three panels. And I think by the time I finished storyboarding and then started working with Glenn and Rat again, um, and then ultimately getting animation on Rat again to do, I felt way more confident as an animator because I wasn't just getting lost in overlapping action and squash and stretch and this and that. I really knew in my head what the beats were and the poses. And that was half the battle, you know, really just the capturing the essence of the scene. Yes. And, 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 and doing that first and then going out and flushing all of the other overlapping action, everything else yeah. after the fact. 
Yes. It, it made you work smarter. Exactly. Because then you don't get lost in the details. Like, you know, when you talk to some people, they go, yeah, you got to add squash and stretch here and overlapping action here and an anticipation and, and you can get lost in all the fluff and then you forget what the, what the main, what, what's the point of the scene. You don't have to yeah. have some of that stuff. Sometimes you can right. just have a still picture with a blink and some dialogue. And if you get the right expression, you don't need a lot of that stuff. Yeah. So anyway, it was a slightly different, a lot of guys went in animation and worked with, with directing animators and then got scenes in animation. And here I did this year and a half detour and just did storyboarding. But then when I started to animate, it kind of just clicked for me. It, it so served it was a you. Nice it served, transition. Really, really yeah. served you well. And, and um, uh, did you, during that year and a half of doing storyboarding, did you start to think to yourself, maybe I don't want to be an animator or, you know, I like boarding, I like directing or, you know, were those thoughts going through your head? You know, it was interesting. I, I don't remember exactly, but I remember loving it. And, but then, you know, like it's kind of been a, a ping pong thing with me my whole career, pretty much everything I ever worked on, I've storyboarded, which has been great because just when, just at the point where you're getting bored with boarding, animation starts. And then right. when, you, when animation's over, you kind of get bored with that. And now it's like, oh, the creative, the the, the storyboarding, the, the storytelling. And then it's the same cycle again. It's like, I'm bored with this. Let me start animating. So it was a little bit of that. And then, because then what happened after Great Mouse Detective was I kind of stayed with the same guys and went right over to Mermaid. So it was the same thing, then boarding first and then animation. Now, did you do anything on Sport Goofy in Soccer Mania and also Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah, yeah. So talk about those. Okay. Well, Sport Goofy was really difficult. Um, You know, um, I think I was interested in uh, directing and I probably expressed it like uh, most people. And then, uh, I think Ed Hansen at the time they they received Sport Goofy. Um, um, it was done outsourced, um, and uh, it came in, and uh, the studio wasn't very happy. It was very popular amongst a lot of the artists, and uh, um, people liked it, but the studio wasn't happy with it. So then there was me and uh, Steve Hickner, and they go. Oh, Steve wants to be a producer. Matt wants to be a director. I go here. Here's X amount of dollars. You guys fix this. Well, like fix it. It was a very unpopular position to be in because the little short was so well received, and there were a lot of <laughs> top tier people that had worked on it. So we were kind of like, you know, it's kind of just, you know, how do you start to fix something that a lot of the people like, but the studio doesn't like, but kind of rolled up our sleeves. We had a limited amount of money, so we we edited it or took scenes out. We storyboarded certain things to just give it a different, you know, storytelling uh, feel. But then at the very end, they go, uh, Matt, uh, well, we, we'll, you know, when they give you a director credit, I go, I can't take director credit on it. This isn't my original thing. I just kind of fixed it, you know, patched it together and they said, no, but we need a director on it. So I just said, well, how about just director of animation? Cause I did, I did not want to have director credit on it cause it didn't feel like it was really my right. project. So you were just going in to fix it. 
Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I did that. And I don't remember what point I did what, but it, you know, I don't know if I did that before Mermaid. But now, did you what, did you do any work on Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah. So I did um, a long stint on, on Mermaid storyboarding, storyboarded a ton of that. And then we pretty much, you know, we were the ones that went, uh, you know, they took us out of even the warehouse. We went from the main studio to the warehouse, and now they moved us across the street to mobile homes. Right. So we we were in like uh, three or four of them that were stuck together, and every time you would walk, the the the, the thing would rock. I knew I, time- I I knew it well because the effects department was in those trailers. Oh yeah, for Little Mermaid. And yeah, so even when you went to the restroom, it was really uncomfortable because it was, <laughs> it was like, like a, like a, uh, you know, like you're on a bat, like, like, like on a plane, but with two people and it, it was just impossible. So it was very difficult, but we had a really great time on, uh, on Mermaid and it was really, uh, uh, that was a whole other thing. So we did boarding on it and character design and everything in that little tiny uh, room together. Um, And then what happened was there was a small break where they were going to, you know, do some more story work on it. But the the crew kind of pared down a little bit. It was just John Ron or whatever. A few people just, and then Glenn came on to do character designs. We're like, okay, well, he's going to do character designs on there's nothing to do. And that's when, uh, uh, Don Hahn approached me to help out with um, um, Roger Rabbit. So to answer your question, it was Mermaid storyboarding, then Roger Rabbit, and it was the two. It was the Toontown section of Roger Rabbit. Yeah, and which then was it was done back in to, LA, and then back, and to, Mermaid. back to Mermaid. Yeah, okay, for animation. Yeah, and, and, and um, did you have a good time on on Roger Rabbit? I mean, can you believe this year's the thirty fifth anniversary? I know. You know what? I had a ball on it. I had a great time. Um, I loved, uh, you know, working on live action. I loved working with the photo stats. I loved just sort of the uh, the challenge of, of 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 doing what you had to do within a camera move. Um, I and I loved just drawing Roger Rabbit and. And we were um, encouraged to be really broad. So I did some super broad stuff with him. It was really eyes bogging out and, you know, really fast stretching, you know, uh, poses. And uh, I had a terrific time in that. And one of my favorite stories about that is we would be drawing, you know, the photo stats, right? So for and just for our, just for our listeners, yeah. a, fo- a photostat is a print of a single frame of the live action. And if if an animator is working on a scene that's one second long, there would be 24 photostat prints to represent that one second or one and a half feet of film. Right. So you would you'd put the photostat down and you'd have to put a piece of paper down on top of it so that you could draw the character interacting with the live actor that's on the photostat. So I wanted to interject that. Go ahead. 
finish your story. No, no, that was great. And they would come in boxes, little boxes like Kodak or something. I don't even remember what, what it was. Yeah, they were the yellow and black Kodak boxes. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember animating at my desk, drawing, and then all of a sudden one of the you know coordinators comes up and he comes up with a dolly, and I'm like, "What is that?" And it was literally like, <laughs> like four and a half feet stacked of boxes, and I go, "What is that?" He goes, "Oh, it's your next scene." I go, <laughs> kidding me? You know what I mean? Like it's it's one thing to you know go through a ream of paper, but to, just to see it these boxes and you're like, Oh my gosh, I got to draw the scene that, you know, so that was, uh, that was pretty crazy. And and a scene like that, I mean, you, you almost feel overwhelmed when that kind of thing shows up at your desk and it takes you like a half a day or a day to kind of wade into it and open the boxes and start flipping the photo stats and really get a sense of what that scene is going to be. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so uh yeah but that that was a crazy time um you know we were uh i don't know how much time we have but we were again in an unwanted situation kind of like when i was in sport goofy so it was kind of like the la unit was was there it was there it was created because they didn't have enough time to finish in london so they created this la unit pulled a bunch of people together to get the, you know, get these additional scenes done. Well, at London didn't like us at all. Richard I did. Will- I, I did. I was in London. <laughs> I was working at the London studio. Maybe Richard Williams didn't like you guys because you were doing the, the Toontown sequence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Richard Williams was not a fan and uh, he was forced to come out and, uh, and work with us. And he did not want to even, interact with us he would just stay in the office all day and and uh he was encouraged to get out and and see our work and go over our drawings and it just was not good he just did not want to be there and and uh it was very uncomfortable but um he was was definitely a quirky person so brilliant brilliant animator though but my very funny story there (laughs) is uh Almost finishing up, I think I was probably a, a week from finishing up when I got kicked off the project. You probably don't even know this, Dave. No. So um, anyway, I had uh, animated these scenes, and we would go over to the, the lot, and Zemeckis would love these scenes. He really loved everything I was doing. It was great. He always uh, looked forward to seeing my work and this and that. So then one day... <laughs> I'm there and I'm showing him the scene. And, uh, you know, I had done Roger Rabbit throughout um, the show, but I got the Lena Hyena, um, you know, a man, you know, the the woman who, the ugly woman who chases uh, um, Eddie Valiant. And so, you know, he falls out of a window and she rushes down there and to catch him and she catches him. And she plants a big kiss on him. That was what was told to do. But her head was so much larger than his that I couldn't just kiss his cheek. It really kissed the whole side of his head. And so I thought it would be really funny to stick her tongue all the way through and come out the other side (laughs) of his. So it came out the other side of the ear and went, and then sucked back. And we brought it in and, um, 
showed it to uh, Zemeckis and he's watching it and he's got his producer there and the editor there and his team, which was always there. And he watched it and he said, great scene, but this doesn't work. I go, what does it mean? What do you mean? He goes, well, this breaks the rules of Toontown. I said, well, how is that? He goes, well, you can't have something happen that Valiant. You could have something like that happen to a cartoon character. So the cartoon character could not stick the tongue through his ear. And then I just innocently said, innocently, completely innocently, I said, oh, well, just a couple of scenes ago, he was flat as a pancake in the elevator. You know what I mean? When the elevator. Yeah, scene. yeah, right. And then, and then there was just silence in the room and he left. And I'm like, and we're all looking like, what's what? He, he just about? looked at you and left? He didn't even look at me. He just left. And then I got called into Don Hahn's office. And he goes, uh, uh, yeah, you're off the picture. I go, I'm <laughs> off the picture. He goes, yeah, uh, they didn't like that, you know, that comment. I go, what? what do you mean? And he goes, and Richard Williams, this is Don. He goes, and Richard Williams wants all your scenes reanimated. And I go, what? And Don goes, no. That's not gonna happen. <laughs> he goes, but they want you off the picture. I go, really? And he, wow. goes, he, he goes, it's no big deal, Matt. You're just you have like a week and a half left. It's not a big deal. So and go, you okay. and, and you went right on to Little Mermaid. Yeah, that was it. I packed up my my box and walked off. And they never reanimated, you know, any of my scenes. Right. And they just they just took the tongue off. Uh, in cleanup, but uh, that was my funny story. So they, so they kept the the rest of the scene of her kissing the yeah. side of his face. They just yeah. didn't do the tongue coming out the other side of his head. Yeah, I'll so never I, be able uh, to see that the same way again. Now I'll always be seeing that <laughs> the tongue. I'll, I'll imagine that tongue sticking out of Eddie's head. <laughs> it was it was so funny. I remember showing it to our group. Everybody laughed. Let's bring it over to Bob. Yeah, it'll be great. And then I just you know. It completely ended me. <laughs> yeah. You know so, what? Um, you know what? He 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 could have looked at you and just said, "Yeah, you know, you're right. Let's leave it in." Yeah, it would have been you just, know you know. Or yeah, you're right. Let's just take the tongue off and I'm bumping on it. Okay, no big yeah. deal. But but yeah. like I said, I wasn't being a smart ass. Maybe now I would be a smart ass, but back then I was just kind of really innocent. <laughs> oh, really? So that was kind of the end of that. And then uh, went back over to Mermaid and and made it on that for another. And and so on Mermaid, you were back with Glenn. You were in Glenn's unit. Were you doing or no? No, no. I was was solo at that point. Oh, wow. um, Yeah. Well, at some point. uh, Oh, did he kick uh, you off of his crew? No. no. (laughs) It's just at that point, we we just got assigned different characters. He was just going to do Ariel. Right. And. uh, and then, you know, I think the first thing I animated was uh, I did some scenes in Under the Sea while there because that was like the only sequence ready to go. So I did, uh, you know, a lot of the little cutaways. Guess who go beyond the plate? You know, just stuff like that. Right. And then um, I think the first thing they they gave me to animate goes, John, go, here, we want you to animate the shark sequence. I go, John, come on, seriously? I just storyboarded that whole thing. Now you want me to animate it too? He goes, yeah, yeah. Is that the one where the shark uh, eventually gets stuck in the uh, yeah. ring of the anchor, yeah. trying to trying to get flounder? Yep. Yeah. 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 So, um, and that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, 
uh, boarding it and then, but then to animating it, it was a little bit, you know, it was just all action. There wasn't a lot of character in there. So it was just this chase, but uh, I enjoyed doing it. It was a lot of fun. Um, and then after that, um, they gave me a uh, chef Louie to do. So that was, uh, nice. that's what, and that's what I remember from mermaid was the whole chef Louie in the kitchen sequence. Cause I knew yeah. you had animated that and I thought it was brilliant and hilarious and just fun. You know, he, he was yeah. a fun character, you know, you really juiced him up. Yeah. Uh, Gary Trousdale did the boards. So it was kind of fun for me to animate something that I didn't storyboard. So that was um, really kind of cool for me to do that. And then, um, then after Chef, you talk about bouncing all over the place. Then I did a lot of, you know, Prince Eric. So I was just all over the place. On that. Yeah. So wow. Well, let yeah. me ask you this. Since we're talking about Mermaid, have you seen the live action Little Mermaid that came out this year? I haven't seen it, but I heard they cut French, uh, the chef out, right? Did they cut him? I, I haven't, I haven't seen it. So, you know, I don't know if it's one of those things where I, I know they added, uh, you know, more of a backstory to Prince Eric, but I haven't seen the film. I was just curious, you know, if yeah. you're going to, if you're going to go see it or how you feel about some of the live action remakes of the animated films we worked on. I don't have any problem with it. Uh, you know, I'm not like boycotting it or anything. It just, I just haven't had a chance to see it, but uh, yeah. I think it would be interesting to watch. Um, um, you know, uh, it's just a different way to tell this, tell the story. Yeah. I, I don't really have, I, I, you know, my, that. my opinion all along on this podcast and now John and I have had this conversation over the years is that, you know, it's a, uh, it, it's a choice for the audience. It, the the audience can say I love the animated film and I only want to see that or they could say I love the animated film and I want to see the live action film and I want to see a stage production and I want to see anything yep. they do with Little Mermaid so it's really giving the the you know it's giving the guest the choice of how they want to consume that story yeah and we did the original and you can't take anything away from that and right it, it worked it was great we had fun doing it and if people want to do a different version of it, that's great too. You know, whatever. So Matt, we we're bumping up against time. So I want to say it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you and we're going to have you back next week. We're going to continue the conversation because yes, there we go. The audience goes nuts. But we want to have you back next week to continue this conversation because after Little Mermaid, you did something I didn't expect. Okay. Well, well no. And, and this has been great. I look forward to coming back. All right. We'll, we'll, we will we will talk to you next week. Matt O'Callaghan, thanks for being on the Skull Rock Podcast. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Al John. Appreciate it. Become a supporter of Skull Rock Podcast with small monthly donations to help sustain future episodes for just 99 cents a month. You can do that just like Lindsay and Joshua. Thank you so much for your support of our show. Be sure to click our link to support the show at skullrockpodcast.com forward slash support. Your attention, please. Now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. Wow, Dave, we packed in a lot in interview one and I can't wait for interview two. 
Oh yeah. I mean, Matt is absolutely fantastic. Love talking with him. Uh, He's got so many stories to tell from behind the scenes and, you know, next week uh, we'll be unpacking more. We'll be talking a little bit about life with Louie and uh, how the Louie Anderson uh, films, you know, the, the television series came about, uh, which Matt's the creator of and uh, just so much more. I mean, there's so many great stories. Oh, he's been involved in so much cool stuff but once again thank you for hanging out till the very end if you just found our show thank you i hope we have uh, you know got you hooked please subscribe to the show leave us those five star reviews anywhere you get podcasts if you think we've earned it if you listen to us on stitcher radio know that stitcher radio is going dark so um be sure to follow us on other podcast platforms you know we're on spotify apple iHeartRadio. Um, you know, Source Radio Network. We're in so many different places, and uh, we would love for you to subscribe and uh, give us those five star reviews, Dave. Why? Why? Why is Stitcher going dark? Stitcher Radio, I think, uh, is it merging with I, somebody. I, I don't think it's merging. I think uh, over the years, the platform, and I listened a lot on Stitcher Radio. Um, you know, for years, I think that platform is just a. Uh, I think uh, maybe they're just found that the platform isn't doing and performing well, um, but uh, you too know, bad. it's too bad. I mean, I enjoyed Stitcher radio for many years, but of course I I've moved on to the Amazon ecosystem and uh, as well as uh, Spotify. So, uh, so for everyone else out there listening on Stitcher, please uh, seek us out on these alternative uh, platforms so you can continue to get new fresh episodes of skull rock podcast every single week. Um, before we talk about some other stuff, Dave, let's just make sure that uh, people follow us on all our social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, individually, we're on LinkedIn. And uh, be sure to, once again, check out the archive of shows and all these great interviews for the past few years at uh, SkullRockPodcast.com and on Stitcher. I'm not Stitcher, but uh, <laughs> Spotify. Give us those emails as well, Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or Aljon at SkullRockPodcast.com and just a shout out for my other show, The Dining at Disney Podcast, uh, where we're knee-deep in the summer talking about summertime foods there at the Disney parks. Dave? Well, I got to tell you, Aljon, we have so many guests booked. We have shows going out until October can you believe that? I can't October. believe it. October. I can't believe it. I mean, it. it's just, it, it's craziness. And uh, I'm, I'm over the moon. I'm excited about uh, the people we have coming on in the coming weeks. A uh, lot of really great guests. Uh, names that may be familiar and other names that might not be familiar, but uh, you're going to know their work. So uh, I'm excited about that. If you get a chance, uh, visit my website, davidbosser.com. Plenty of information there. Uh, if you're interested in a uh, autographed copy of one of my books, go to the oldmillpress.com. And with that, Al John, uh, I will say we will see you here next Monday, right here on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List Podcast, as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel, vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. 
Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com.